time to get 18 through 25. I'm going to be honest, I wrestled this week whether I wanted to talk about 18 through 25, whether I wanted to just move on to chapter 3, uh, because I am a task-oriented person. I had this list, and we were supposed to be on Wives and Husbands this week, and it was like killing me that we didn't make it there. And I'm like, okay, well, how, what are we going to shift around, and how are we going to do this? Um, and I'm glad I chose not to do that. I'm glad I, I chose to, to finish up this. This morning's sermon, obviously, will probably be a little bit shorter. Uh, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, but um, for me, as I, as I studied this passage, um, I, I'm new I'm a new Mennonite, so to speak. I'm a new Anabaptist. I did not grow up in this world. I didn't grow up anything that had to do with Mennonites. Karen and I didn't even know what a Mennonite really was until 2008 uh, when we moved to PA and became a part of Lancaster Conference. Um, so it's still very new to me. Um, as I, Again, not the way I was raised at all, uh, but just the, the values of the Anabaptists is something that I, I feel are very biblical and I've fallen even more in love with as I study. And I just wanted to share this before I dive into this. And for some of you, maybe this is a repeat. For some of you, uh, maybe you never knew this. But Second Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 3.12 was basically the mantra, mantra the, the whatever you want to call it, um, for the Anabaptist early believers. Um, I was amazed at the rich history of this passage. So as, as the Reformation happened and Martin Luther put up his theses and then from that we had these continuing sects that said, look, this is not what Scripture said. Um, the Anabaptist leaders, this was a passage that was required for memorization in the early Anabaptist church. I thought that was amazing. I mean, again, maybe some of you knew this. Um, but First Peter 2.11 through 3.12 was a passage. So what we've looked at the last couple of weeks and what we're going to continue to look at today and even next week, or not next week, two weeks from now, because uh, next week is Darren, was a passage that was commanded, recommended, a must to survive the persecution of the early Anabaptist reformers. I, I just want to say, share a couple of names. And again, this is just history. Um, this, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just found this um, amazing uh, Dirk Phillips, an early Dutch Anabaptist leader, makes no less than 40 references in his book, Martyr's Mirror, to this exact passage that we're going to look at today and the verses around it. No less than 40 references. The most frequently mentioned verses are two, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and chapter 2, 19 through 25, which is exactly where we're going to be today. He only left out verse 18, and particularly verse 221, which strongly shaped Anabaptist understanding of what it means to be a Christian disciple Literally following the steps of Jesus is what he says, Peter, the, the quote they took from Peter right there where he talks about that. Menno Simons also uh, quoted this over and over and over again. Again, Menno Simons is who the Mennonites are named after. And there's quotes in here. I'm not going to read all these things, but Menno Simons had this. Michael Sattler memorized this. It was a huge thing in his writings. Basilbein Hupmeister, another Anabaptist, uh, put this in his church and talked about it. And the list goes on and on and on. Lyson Dirks and his wife had this passage memorized. And as they were executed on September 12th of 1551 by fire at the stake, they both quoted the scripture over and over and over until the Lord took them home to glory because they wanted their enemies to know who to worship. 
This, this, this passage that we're looking at, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 3, 12, was basically the very basis for the nonviolent resistance. And it's not just with Anabaptists, it's not just with Mennonites that, that, and again, the list is huge of the people that this meant something to. This was the main passage that Martin Luther King Jr. held onto. This was the main passage that was held onto in the Ugandan uprising. And we know in Uganda there was just an absolute slaughter of believers. And Bishop Festo Kivan who wrote about that with the help of a Mennonite missionary and loving his enemies, even though he saw so many of his brothers and sisters killed and forgiving his enemies. And he actually gave his testimony at the 1978 Mennonite World Conference in Wichita, Kansas. Potentially some of you may have been there. I have no idea. That wasn't that long ago, a year before I was born. So maybe it was a long time ago. Another thing I found interesting is that there was several hostages taken in the, near, in the Middle East between 84 and 91, a time when we were kind of at war with the Middle East, and there was different hostages taken case. None of them were Christians, but they were taken hostage with a Presbyterian missionary, Ben Weir. All the hostages, Ben taught them this passage. They memorized it. Every single hostage became a believer under Ben while they were in, in captivity, either between 84 and 91. And different ones were released at different times. Every single one of them became a believer. Every single one of them memorized this passage because Ben, we are taught it to them. And every single one of them forgave their captors and prayed for them every single day. Ben and Carol, we are then told a report about that that was shared later on. And there's a book called The Hostage Bound, The Hostage Free. And the book was about the fact that the hostages were free in Christ, not necessarily free from captivity. The stories go on and on and on. Modern day people that have wrestled with this and wrote about it. John Piper, David Platt, Francis Chan all quoting the scriptures and what do we do with this? What do we do with this loving our enemies and setting weapons aside and taking on the persecution? And then the last one I just want to point out, Gregory Jones wrote this book and I don't know who, who, who he is. I didn't look into him, but there was a story that popped out in that. He wrote a book called Loving Your Enemies. And in that book, he shared a story. And this is from even 1986 Bill Bossler was a pastor in Miami, Florida, and he was stabbed. Uh, he was a brother and pastor, and he was stabbed in his parsonage. And for the next 10 years, his daughter, Sue Ann, who was 16 at the time of his death, spent the next 10 years fighting for this man's freedom, fighting that he would not get the death sentence, fighting, and this passes with what she was quoted. In fact, she wasn't even allowed to speak in court because she didn't want this man to die. And so they threw her out of court and they said, strike her testimony from the record. Because she said the perpetrator should live. Partly as a result of her witness, the death penalty was commuted to a life imprisonment. So the man was given life in prison. Then Sue Ann was allowed to say to the jurors, even though she was thrown out of court, thank you for giving life and not death to James Bernard Campbell. I am so overwhelmed. This is the happiest moment of the past ten and a half years. I cannot thank you enough. I've worked hard for this life to be spared. Now I can go on with my own life. The rest of the story that I found out is that because of Sue Ann's testimony, because of Sue Ann fighting for ten years for James Campbell, who did commit a crime and who will spend his life in prison, James became a Christian and now leaves one of the biggest prison ministries in Florida. 
He's a pastor in the church. Or he's a pastor in a prison church. And every single day he witnesses to people and shares why he is still alive because of what Sue Ann did for him. That's the rich history of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. It's starting, again, with Menno Simons and Sattler and, and people that you probably know from Anabaptist history. But again, going on and on and on. Another guy from Yugoslavia uh, quoted that, again, back in the 80s. So, I, again, I just, to me, that was just like, wow. Like I, like, I didn't grow up hearing any of this stuff. I didn't grow up hearing any of this stuff. I, I never was told to love my enemies. I was told to blow them up. Um, I'm just being honest. I was. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone beats you, beat them back. And as I study scripture and we're, we're going through that book, obviously downstairs fight, I, I just don't see that. And so again, some of you are going to disagree with me. That's completely fine. I'm okay with that. All I ask is that you're willing to study scripture. All I ask is that you're willing to see what's here and go, what is God asking of me? And, the, and I share those stories not to, to say, hey, I'm right and we're wrong. It's not about that. I'm saying people have been studying and wrestling with this passage for years, since the 14 and 1500s. And because of that, loving their enemies, because of what they've seen in that. And I wanted to share some of the recent stories because this wasn't just a 1400, a 1500 thing of the Anabaptist reformers. This was happening in the 80s and even the 90s, and I'm sure even in present day, although none were in that particular book I just shared from, that commentary on this passage. So, Second Peter 2, 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And if you remember in verse 17, and, and your notes, I just left your notes blank. I want you to write whatever God is laying on your heart. I don't want this to be a, hey, Mike said this, fill in the blank, because I, I think it's going to speak, the Spirit is going to speak to different ones of us different ways. But remember in verse 17, he had just said, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, worship God, and honor the empire. Then he goes right back into this, this, this concept. So we talked about lo- submission to the government and how the Lord has put those people over. We're supposed to honor everyone. And then he goes right into the servants. And I know verse 18 is tough because we, don't, we, don't, we ourselves as Americans, most of us are not slaves. At least none of us are that I'm aware of. You may feel like you're a slave to work. You may feel like your boss is an unjust master. Um, but we're not in slavery. But obviously in early Rome they were. And tons of people were. And so he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. He's like, look, you, you, you got to comply. You've got to be subject. You've got to treat these bosses, these slave masters. No matter how they treat you, you still need to treat them like Christ is essentially what Peter's saying. And I think that can translate to the workplace. And if you have a boss that you just want to smack or, or is unjust, man, you, you still need to treat him like Christ. You know, that's not to say you're not going to be put in a tough situation. We had someone uh, Wednesday night share about a tough situation that might be happening at their work where they're going to potentially be asked to lie on documents. That's, that's this passage in modern day 2021. When your boss is unjust and is trying to cheat the system and telling you to lie, what do you do as a believer? Do you lie and submit to your boss or do you honor God and say, I can't do that. You'll have to sign off on this. And some of us in this very room have been faced with that. So, yes, we're not slaves. We don't have masters, but it still happens, especially in the workplace. And I think even in the home sometimes. I hope it hasn't happened here, but I know of believers that have lied on their taxes and tried to cheat on their taxes 
Man, Mitchell Cruz, you, none of you guys know him. He was a, he was a co-pastor at Blackhawk when I worked at Blackhawk. Dude's got more money than any of us will ever know in our life. But it was never enough. It was never enough. And so he cheated on his taxes. He lied on his taxes. And he went to jail for it. He spent time in jail. Grew up in a church, grew up in a, grew up as a Christian home, was even an elder in the church, and he was lying on his taxes, he was cheating, he went to jail for tax fraud. In jail, Christ got a hold of him. I don't remember how long he spent in jail. He shared his testimony multiple times. I don't remember that, and I, I apologize. He wrote a book about it, but anyway, he got out of jail, went to, back to seminary, became a pastor, was working at Blackhawk, and in the course of that, God gave him back his business. Uh, he, he owns an auctioneer company in, in uh, Auburn, Indiana. He has one of the largest car collections. Even it rivals Jay Leno's. I'm not making this up. He's got the Batmobile. He's got a Duke's car. He's got the A-Team van. He's got the Back to the Future car. I mean, if, this, if you want a car, this guy has it. God gave it all back to him as he started to serve for the kingdom. And then he sold it. He sold it a couple years later. He got out of jail. God gave everything back. He got more money than he had to do with. He sold it because he's like, I, I just want to be a pastor. Five years later, God gave it back to him again. At like, because the guys went out of business. The guys that bought it ran the company in the ground. He bought it for pennies on the dollar. I, I mean, can't make this stuff up. He sold it five years later for multi-billions of dollars. And all the while, he just kept investing that in kingdom. I just, I mean, he just, he goes, I keep trying to get rid of this. I keep trying to get rid of this company. I keep trying to get rid of this auction and God just keeps giving it back to me at a cheaper price. And then I sell it for even more money. He goes, I don't know what to do except give it away. Now granted, he's kept some because he has all those cars still today. They're in his house, if you want to call it a house. But I mean, he's planted churches. He's started Christian schools he fully funds a Christian school in Auburn, Indiana. He's planted orphanages. He just keeps, he's like, I, I'm trying to outgive God and I can't, and I can't, and I can't. And the point of that whole story is that he was that unjust. He was cheating. He was lying. He was trying to cheat the system. And he submitted to God and he submitted to the rules. And God said, watch what I'm going to do with your life. And today Mitchell's a pastor at County Line Church in Auburn, Indiana. And he goes, every time I try to get rid of this company, God gives it back to me. So now I'm just holding on to it. And we're going to give the profits 100% away because I don't need the money. So he gives 100% of the profits away and lives on whatever he lives on. I have no idea. Like I said, the guy's got more money than any of us will ever see in a lifetime. So servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only the good and gentle ones, but also the unjust but like it said in verse 17, but fear God, worship God, honor God. So as you are in that workplace and your boss comes in, you ask you to do something that's unjust, some, something that's wrong. You're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make a stand. You might even have to resign from that job. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I wish I did, but I don't. I simply know that this passage is telling us to take a stand for Christ. And I know that's going to look different in each situation. He goes on in verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So in the, course of, uh, in the course of government, in the course of masters, he's like, look, if you're suffering unjustly, if you're innocent, if you haven't done anything wrong, this is a gracious thing in the mind of God's. God. Not the God, sorry, the mind of God. God sees it. God knows it. God knows you're enduring. He's like, you, you're going to suffer. 
I'm telling you, because of the Roman culture, you're going to suffer. And I'm telling us today, because of the American culture, because of the world we live in, we are going to suffer. It's only a matter of time. It is only a matter of time. And Peter is saying, but what are you going to do in that suffering? How are you going to respond? How, what are you going to do? Are you going to love them as your enemies? Are you going to love them like Christ? Are you going to be mindful? Are you going to treat them and submit to them even when they're unjust? Or are you going to act like the world? This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, we know suffering unjustly is going to happen. Peter's claiming it. And it still happens today. Suffering unjustly, it just happens. Because we live in a broken world, we live in a sinful world, it will never be perfect until Christ returns. He says, but God sees that. You have to endure, not because of yourself, not because you're, you're, you're a vessel of God, you're a chosen people. That's why he spent this whole time reminding us of who we are. We're this chosen race. We're God's temples. We're his priests. He's like, endure this. God will take care of it. For what credit is it if you, when sin, are beaten and you endure? There's no credit when you get a punishment when you did something wrong. They're like, oh, well, yeah, my dad used to spank me and I endured it. Well, yeah, you got spanked because you did something wrong. Peter's like, there's no credit when you sin and are, in this case, beaten for it you endure. But, but... And I underline that in a different color in my Bible. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Where God is giving credit is when we're enduring and suffering, even though we did no wrong. When you did the right thing, when you did the good thing, when you stood up, even if it means costing you your job, when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure through that, that's the gracious thing in the sight of God. He's like, if you're being punished because you did something wrong, well, good. You should be punished for doing something wrong. But when you're being punished for doing the right thing, that is what God is going to find, give you grace and give you reward and look at because you're following in the steps of Christ. Why? Verse 21. For to this you have been called. So verse 20 and 21, again, go together. But when it, if, but if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. That is not a popular verse in church. I have been in church for 41 years of my life, and I never, ever, ever remember this passage ever being teached. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying I don't remember it. But when pastors get up front and say, hey, you've been called to suffer, generally people don't like it. Just, we're human, right? We don't want to suffer. I, I don't want I don't like to suffer. I don't want my enemy to win. I want to win. I mean, I'm just being honest. And Peter's like, look, when you suffer, when you endure, that's the gracious thing. For this is what you've been called to, because Christ awful, su- wow, because Christ also suffered for you. And that's where I stopped this week in preparing, and I just spent some time dwelling on that, thinking about that. It's when I found all these different stories of these people that suffered, did no wrong, did good, just suffered because they were believers. Whether it was in 1551 or 1986, people that suffered. He says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. I've only watched the Passion of the Christ once. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. I don't know about the rest of you in the room. If some of you watch it every Easter, I, I can't. I physically just cannot watch that movie. I just 
weep. I just, I just weep. Real men cry. Just saying it. I just, I just weep when I watch that movie. When I think of what Christ went through. And I, and I think, and I realize it's a movie. And I realize Mel Gibson made it. But the depiction was about as accurate as possible. And I think of that suffering. On that cross right there. You know, in, in every church we have crosses. And crosses... Man, they, they depict death, they depict suffering, they depict a criminal, and yet we have them in our churches that are remembrance of what an innocent man, an innocent man, an innocent Lord and Savior did for us. And yet we're alarmed when we suffer too. We're supposed to walk in his footsteps. We're supposed to be like Christ. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over this book. We're supposed to be like Christ. Well, if Christ was put on that thing and he did no wrong, why would we expect anything else? But yet we do. We expect to have the easy life, the good life. We expect it to go good and well and nothing bad will ever happen. And when something bad happens, we get mad and we get angry. And we're like, where is God now? Why are you doing this, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you listening to me? Why is life rough? And yet scriptures, every single book in the New Testament, except first or second Timothy says you will suffer. But somehow we've convinced ourselves we will not suffer. We've bought into a lie. We have bought into a lie that has been taught in the American church, the Western church, for far too long that somehow, as Christians, we will not suffer. And we're comfortable in that lie. But yet, all throughout Scripture, it says, for this is you have been called. You have been called to suffer. Now, I'm not saying go out and look for it. I'm not saying go out and put yourself in that situation. Like, well, I've been called to suffer, so I'm going to go be an idiot and go stand in front of a gun or whatever. No. I'm not saying go out and look for it, but when it happens in your life because you stood up for Christ, when it happens because you did the right thing, you should not be surprised. It's our calling. That, 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 that's crazy. For this you have been called because Christ awful, also, sorry, not awful, also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Second, first Peter 2.21, the most quoted verse Ever in the history of the church. In Martyrs Mears, Bontroffer, the list goes on of people that suffered and suffered and suffered. And they quoted this verse. They said, look, I've been called to this. Christ also suffered. I cannot say that. For me, leaving an example so that I might follow in his steps. Again, I'm not telling you to go out and purposely look for it. But it's going to happen. You're going to run into a situation in your life. You're going to run into a situation where you're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to be a Christian and honor Christ with my life, recognizing there's going to be suffering? Or am I going to fight that? Am I going to want justice? Am I going to do whatever I'm going to do? And and Peter's saying, look, you're supposed to follow the steps of Christ. And he goes on and explains what that is. And I know we know this, and, and these are probably verses we read all the time at Easter, but let's just read these and really listen to them. We're supposed to follow the steps of Christ. Well, what were the steps of Christ? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, those are easy verses to read, but they are hard verses to live out. They are hard verses to live out. He committed no sin. 
I have never gone a day where I have not committed sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Deceit is found in my mouth at times. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. I'm guilty of that. I've definitely reviled in return. He was suffered, but he did not threaten. I've definitely threatened when I've suffered. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's where I fall short. And I'm just speaking about me because I can only speak about me. I fail day in and day out at entrusting myself to him who judges justly. Because I want to fix it. I want there to be justice. I want to know it's been taken care of. I want to see it. And so instead of entrusting this to God, I take matters into my own hands. And when I take matters into my own hands, I just mess it up. Every time. I have yet to fix anything. Any of us who are married, we know we we can't fix our wives. We just are supposed to listen. But we constantly try to fix it. And when we try to fix it, what happens? There's a fight, right? Well, at least in our house. Maybe not in yours. Man, I try to fix it. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to fight for the fatherless. We just read that in Psalms. Clearly, we stand up for those in prison. Clearly, we fight for the fatherless, the orphans, the widows, the exiles, the soldiers. But when people come against us, we are supposed to follow in the steps of Christ. We're supposed to live like Christ. We're supposed to be an example of Christ. And so we're not supposed to have deceit in our mouths. We're not supposed to revile back or mock back or slander back or gossip back. Man, when we're when we suffer, we don't we don't threaten back. We can continue to entrust our life to him who judges justly. And I've I've learned the best way to do that in my life is literally to just sometimes say nothing. I I, I remember my first couple months in Africa, this happened a lot. We'd get called to meetings and it'd just be like attack the missionary, attack the missionary. And man, and you just wanted to respond in anger or defense. And, and when we did that, or I did that, it, it just made the situation worse. It's like they fed on that anger. They fed on that. They just, then it just got more and more heated. And over time, I learned to just sit there, take it, listen, sometimes even apologize, and be like, man, I'm really sorry that happened. Like, I'm, I'm sorry that missionary said that. I mean, I just, I just took it. Now, was it easy? No. Did it hurt? Yes. Because generally I was being blamed for things I didn't even do because they happened 10 years before I moved there. But that's part of being in ministry, I think. Did I go home and just let loose on my wife, not in a bad way, but tell her all about it? Yes. I had to lament. I had to vent it out. I had to be like, here's what happened to me and I don't even understand. And here's what they said. And man, that hurts. And I, like, I just want to pack up our bags and leave. I mean, I went through all that. Like, I'm, I'm a human being. I have emotions. I have feelings, as do all of us, Right? But I just learned, like Jesus did, I I thought back, because I I would fight back at first, and that just made the situation worse. And I was like, what did Christ say? Well, Christ said nothing. Until he finally said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I never said that. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. But Christ was just quiet in his trial, in his mocking, in his beatery, when he was on the cross. He said very little things. He told John to take care of his mom. He forgave his enemies. He forgave his attackers. And remember that, he did not say much. So I learned just to be quiet. Just let it happen. Say very little. Affirm their hurt. Tell them I was sorry when appropriate. And then go home and just share with my wife my, my frustrations and my laments. Pray about it. 
and then move on to the next day. I was supposed to follow in his footsteps. Now, do I do that well? No. Do I fail at this a lot? Yes. Is this easy? Absolutely not. But I believe it's what we're called to do. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And when I try to take care of my sin and when I try to fix it, I mess it up. I'm supposed to let him take my sin. He might die to sin and live to righteousness because by his wounds I have been healed. Learning to live in that, learning to let go, learning to forgive our enemies, learning to forgive ourselves because sometimes we are our greatest enemy. Understanding that Christ's wounds truly heal us, that he died for those things, and we can lay them at the foot of the cross, we can lay them at his feet, and we can begin to live through the Holy Spirit in righteousness. And he transforms us from the inside out. That's when we can begin to do these kind of things. Not revile, not threaten, and trusting ourselves. But it starts right here. It does not start here. It starts right here. Recognizing who Jesus was, what he did for us, how much he loves us, and that he wants us that, that same life for us, that he died for us, that he was willing to die for all those things that we mentioned. And by his very blood and death, by his wounds, we have been healed. I mean, that, that's, a, that's contradictory, right? We are healed by his wounds. That doesn't even make sense. Because when I get a wound, it has to heal. But yet by Christ's wounds, by his death, by his blood, his actual wounds heal me. That's the opposite of everything we know about science. I've no, generally, other people's wounds don't heal us. Except maybe, I guess you could say a blood transfusion. By his wounds, we have been healed. He died for that sin. He died for those things. And in that suffering, in that death, all of it was unjust. And he did nothing but love his enemies. Marvin said in Sunday school this morning, He's like, if we don't commit this to our lives, then we're actually faced with it. We will not do it. And he's right. It's the wisest thing I've heard all morning. Thank you, Marvin, for sharing. He's like, look, if, if we don't say, this is what I'm going to live for, this is what I'm going to be, then that, does that mean we're not going to screw up? No. And Marvin shared stories where he has screwed up. Like, we will. I do too. Like, the point wasn't saying we're going to be perfect. But he said, look, if we don't commit this to our lives, if we don't commit to say, this is how I'm going to choose to live, then when that moment comes and we're in it and we're suffering, we're not going to respond the way we want to because we're going to respond in flesh. So we have to commit to Christ. We have to commit to his righteousness. We have to commit to those wounds healing us. And it's a battle and it's a struggle and we'll battle it and struggle it till the day we die. Because we're humans. Because we have flesh. Because we are born into sin. And this is something that we're going to wrestle with forever. And some days we're going to rejoice that we did well. And some days we're going to go, man, i got to go back to that person and apologize. (laughs) Because I slandered them. I gossiped about them. I hurt them. I threatened them. I screwed up. And I've got to go apologize. But I think that apology and that grace comes out of the fact of what Marvin said. We've committed to this is what we want to be. We want to be like Christ. We want to follow in his footsteps. We don't want to do the things of the world. And so in that, we get to that submission and humility a lot quicker to say, I got to go apologize instead of living in that frustration and anger. For you were strained like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And again, just continuing on with that thought, Marvin said, we can only return to the shepherd if we know the shepherd's voice. Right? We can't, we can't, if you don't know the shepherd's voice, you can't return. If this is not a part of our daily life, if we're not spending time reading scriptures, praying, talking, being encouraged, whatever, whatever you want to do as part of your daily life, if we do not know the shepherd's voice, you cannot return to something you do not know. Because you won't know the voice. It'll get mixed up with all the other voices, all the voices of the world, all the voices of all these other things that you can worship or follow. He said, you were strained like sheep. So even Peter's like, look, you're strained. You're struggling with this. He's, remember, he's writing this letter to encourage them to stay the course, to keep suffering. That Rome, the culture, is messed up. And he understands that, and he recognizes that, and he laments with them. But he says, but we have to choose to be like Christ. We can't justify to be something else. So they were strained. They were struggling, just like we do. And he said, you were strained like sheep, but you've now returned so clearly this letter is written in an encouragement that as they were straying, they returned to the shepherd. Well, you can only return to the shepherd if you know his voice. If we don't know the voice, we continue to stray. We continue to stray. And I think we've seen that in the last few decades. Leaders and pastors who have strayed and have not returned have begun to justify actions and teachings and things that are not biblical. And I would say that, uh, sadly, they never knew the shepherd's voice. Even though maybe they got up every Sunday and acted like they did. I don't know their hearts. Thankfully, I don't have to judge their hearts. But I continue to see people of the church and leaders just stray and stray. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. You've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I love that word, overseer of our souls. You know, every time I talk to Darren, he challenges me, encourages me. He asks me how I'm doing. He, he pushes, man. He pushes, but he does not let me stay as I am, which I love and I hate, right? I'm like, do you really have to say that, Darren? Like, come on, man. But he pushes me. Right? Because he's my overseer. He's our overseer. He wants the best for me. He wants the best out of me. And so he pushes and he asks questions. He's really good at asking questions that we don't like and have to deal with. And the same way is true of the Lord. He's that overseer of our soul. So as we wrestle with different topics in scriptures, this one or another one, he's going to point us to scriptures. He's going to ask those questions. He's going to bring people into our lives to ask those questions. He's going to push us because the Lord wants what's best for his creation. Remember, we're his masterpieces. He designed us. He created us. And he's up there chiseling us all away. And he wants those masterpieces to be the best they can possibly be. So in that overseer, he's going to protect us and he's going to guide us. And eventually, in our submission, he's going to lead us. So the only way we can follow in the footsteps of Christ and deal with the suffering that we're going to face in this world is if we know the shepherd and we're letting him be the overseer of our soul. And that's hard. It's hard to admit when we're wrong. It's hard to admit when we've screwed up. It's hard to let God chisel because there's just things we want to hold on to and we want to do and we don't want to give up. But he's trying to protect us. He's trying to guide us. He's trying to lead us. And we've got to let him. 
We've got to know the voice so that we can let him work on our souls so that we can ultimately follow in the footsteps of Christ. So back to what Marvin said, we have to commit to this now. It can't be just something we talk about or something we think about. We have to say, look, I, I want to live like Christ. I want to be this body of Christ, this image of Christ. And I know it's tough, and I know I'm going to fail, and I know I'm going to fall down, but I'm committing to this. And sh- Lord, lead me, guide me, show me. Help me hear your voice. Help me to be able to act this way in situations as Christ acted. And that's why I shared a whole stories at the beginning, because they're all stories of people that did that. Now, were their lives perfect? No, of course not. Some of them started off with violent pasts or promoting war and they got there through time or whatever else. None of them were perfect. But at the end of their life, every single one of those, most of those people were were martyred, not all of them, but they got to that point because the overseer of their souls was helping them hear the shepherd and helping them walk like Christ. And the coolest thing is when you begin to read things like Martyr's Mirror and Jesus Freak and all these different books about martyrs, in almost every situation, in their death, as they're praising God, as they're quoting scriptures, people are getting saved. I mean, people are literally getting saved because they chose to follow the steps of Christ. And you know what? In the story of Jesus at the cross, the exact same thing happened. When was the last time we remembered that story in Easter, right? Jesus dies and he's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what to do. And then there's an earthquake and it's dark and the whole world is shaking. And it says the centurion soldier said, surely that was God's son. Or surely that was a man of God. I'm I'm sure I'm not quoting it right. But you guys know what I'm saying? Because Velma's nodding. Right? Even in Christ's death, as he said nothing except forgive them, a centurion soldier that was right there acknowledged that he was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and became, what I would say the Bible says, a Christian. So in Christ's very death, someone was converted. And when you read the stories of all these forefathers that died and, and their wives that died for the faith, that died so we are where we are today, almost in all their deaths, someone became to the Lord. Man, I love this story of in Russia where, where the 30 men are out on the ice, and, or maybe it was 40, it doesn't matter, it was 30 or 40, and they, they're allowed to leave, and the one does leave, and the other soldier says, I want in. I want what they got. I want that faith. These people obviously were, didn't have clothes on, trying to keep it kid-friendly. They were on ice, it was very cold, they were going to die of hypothermia. And that soldier just takes off everything and joins them and starts singing praises and worships and is saved in that moment and however many minutes later, dies. But he's in the kingdom of heaven with those other men that he died side by side. I mean, the stories go on and on and on of people loving their enemies and those enemies becoming Christians, becoming believers. I think we we saw a perfect testimony last week. Brian, who's now John, becoming a believer. And for so many years, he was the enemy of Daniel. He was the enemy of Saja. He was their older brother when, when, when the Ramadan happened. They weren't allowed at home. They weren't allowed to eat because they were Christians. They were kicked out of their home and they had to scrounge for food and they had to look for food for all through Ramadan, Daniel and Saja. And many times they went without and their brother persecuted them and their brother hated on them and their brother reviled them and their brother mocked them. And now their brother, because of the love they showed him, is a believer and he's walking through the exact same thing. And we need to pray for people like that. John has gone up to Gambia to be discipled by the church. But in the meantime, his wife has left him. His children have left him. His family is disowning him. He's going through the exact same thing that he did to his brother, Daniel and Saja. 
And I talked to him just yesterday. I probably won't talk to him while he's in Gambia. He won't have great phone service. And he said, Mike, it's so weird. I did all these things to my brothers, and I just have peace. He's like, I now understand what they walked through, and yet all I want is Jesus more. And let that be the cry of our hearts. I'm suffering, but all I want is Jesus more and more and more. He's following in the footsteps of Christ, and he barely even knows what that means. For we were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. This whole theme is going to continue on when talking about marriage and wives and husbands, because again, a lot of times people are unequally yoked, especially in Roman culture. A lot of times people are married and someone becomes a believer, and then you're dealing with that. And so in two weeks, we'll continue looking at biblical marriage and how do we, how do we be in a marriage that's not equally yoked? How do we be in a marriage where one person's a believer and one person's not a believer? What does God say about that? And again, it's the continuing of the suffering for his kingdom. Suffering for righteousness' sake. Let's pray. God, you, you're the shepherd. And so many times I do not hear your voice. I'm so busy doing other things. I, or I've learned to tune it out or I want to tune it out because I don't like what you're going to say. God, when I do that, I stray. We stray. God, help us to hear your voice. Help us to know your voice. Help us to turn back to your voice and let you be the overseer of our soul. And Lord, it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful and there's going to be aspects we don't like, but God, we need it. We need it because left to our own accord, we would be just like judges. Where everyone did as he saw fit and it was complete chaos and disaster. It's the world we live in today. People are doing as they see fit and it's complete chaos and disaster. God, you are hope. You are peace. You are love. You are grace. You are forgiveness. And we get to show that to people by following in your footsteps and God, when we follow in your footsteps, it will not be easy. We will get mocked. We will get reviled. We will get persecuted. We will get punished. Whatever. Every different adjective we looked at this morning. But God, we can only do that because you're living in us and by your grace. God, help us to follow in your footsteps. Help us to truly suffer for righteousness sake. Help us to suffer for the kingdom, just like you did. Help us to be salt and light in those situations. God, help us to illuminate you in all that we do. Every single day, every single week, every single year. God, when we fall down, bring brothers and sisters to pick us up and bring alongside us, to encourage us, to love on us, to pray for us, to help us get back when we're straying. God, help us to be the church that loves and cares for each other, that's willing to speak out, that's willing to walk gently with discipline and help each other. Opposed to just worrying about ourselves and not anyone else. God, help us to follow in your footsteps. In your precious name we pray. Amen.